this morning, uh, being that it is Easter Resurrection Day. We're going to take just a moment here to look at some words from Paul here in his first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15. If you found your way there, I'm going to invite you to stand with me. We're going to be reading verses 12 through 19. 1 Corinthians, chapter 15, verses 12 through 19. Again, Paul writing to the church of Corinth, and he says this, Now if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God, because we testified against God that he raised Christ, and we did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ will have perished. And we have hoped in Christ in this life also. We are of all men most to be pitied. You can be seated, and I'll pray for us this morning. Father, we do thank you that as we gather here this morning, that we gather here as a victorious people, people who are not victorious in our own merits and accomplishments, but victorious in the accomplishments of your Son, that on this day we remember, we celebrate, we glorify the fact that after three days of lying in a borrowed tomb, that Jesus was raised from the dead, defeating the power of death, hell, and Lord, help us to remember very distinctly and acutely, Father, how important this day is to us as believers. And Lord, that it's not just something that we celebrate once a year, but Father, it's something that we even celebrate every single day of our lives. Lord, the knowledge of knowing who Christ is, what he has done, and what he has accomplished on our behalf. So God, to direct our hearts this morning, Father, I pray that you would do, as your word tells us, you would do your perfect work in each one of us. Or for some, drawing them to salvation. For others, Lord, offering correction and chastisement. And for others, bringing comfort and joy. Lord, wherever we may be this morning, you know our hearts, you know our minds, you know exactly what we need even more than we know. And we pray that the Holy Spirit would do his perfect work in our hearts. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The understanding and belief... And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is essential to the message of the gospel. If we lose the resurrection of the dead, brothers and sisters, we lose everything that we hold dear. Amen. Now here Paul is writing a letter to the church at Corinth. And we don't have time this morning to go into all the details of all that's happening at Corinth. But just for you to understand that it was a church that was troubled on many fronts. There are a lot of different issues going on inside the church. There was misbehavior by some of the members of the church. There was an unwillingness to deal with sin by some of the leadership in church. There was false teaching creeping into the church. But the one thing that we find throughout all of Paul's letters, even to this very troubled church, is that Paul loved these people dearly. And even though they were struggling, he did not view them as outsiders. He still viewed them as brothers and sisters in Christ. And he wrote them with deep passion and concern and love in order to bring them to where they needed to be. Paul was a man who was passionate about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, about the resurrection of the dead. 
In almost every sermon, almost every letter that he wrote, he spent at least some time referencing the resurrection of the Lord whom he loved so dearly. Because Paul understood the paramount importance of the resurrection to the gospel story. In the book of Acts, if you were to go through and you were to study Paul's actions there, you'll find him confessing that the entire reason that he was hated by the Jews was because of his teaching on the resurrection. His teaching that Jesus had been raised from the dead put him at stark opposition to what the Jews taught and what they believed and what they wanted to be accepted. He even points out that King Agrippa, by all reasonable object, that if one believes the prophets... If one believes what the Old Testament said, then one will believe in the resurrection. And if you believe in the resurrection, then you have to believe in the one person, Jesus Christ, who fulfilled every single prophecy in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah and rose from the dead. Now, it's often pointed out that, you know, many of those types who, who try to, the higher critics who try to criticize the Bible would say, well, you know, Jesus just orchestrated his life. You know, in order to look like he was the Messiah. Now, I'll give you credit. There is, there's a chance that somebody might have been able to look at certain things about the Messiah and orchestrate their life in order to work out that way. But there are some things that are impossible, even as great as a person may be and as much money as they have, that they cannot orchestrate their life to do. You did not get to pick where you were born. Amen. You did not get to pick who your family would be. Right. But yet Jesus was born in the exact place that all the prophecies said that the Messiah would be born. He was born into the same family lineage that the prophecy said that all said that the Messiah would be born into. And even when it comes to Jesus' death, you might have fulfilled every single other prophecy about the Messiah. But then when it comes to your death, the scripture tells us that the Messiah would die and he would be raised from the dead. And you can't do that. Only one person could. Amen. And that was Jesus Christ. Amen. And so Paul is pointing out that if you believe in the resurrection, you believe in the prophecies, you have to believe that this Jesus, the one who rose from the dead, is the Messiah. And even with all the passion that Paul possessed, his willingness to deny his own self in order to proclaim the news of the resurrection, Paul was willing to suffer imprisonment and pain and difficulty and trial and tribulation to continue the teaching of the good news of Jesus' resurrection. But even with all that, there were some who began to teach and deny the doctrine of the resurrection from the dead. This is what Paul is addressing here at the church of Corinth. Now it's interesting, we don't know where this began to creep in from. Uh, many have pointed to different sources. It could have been some of the, the Pharisees, or it could have been some of the Sadducees. The Sadducees did believe in the resurrection from the dead. It could have been uh, from the Greek philosophers who tend to hold more of a, a role of dualism. We really don't know, but what was happening was they were creeping in and beginning to teach that Jesus, yes, was resurrected from the dead, but that there was no resurrection from the dead for anyone else. Christ had been raised, but no one else was going to be raised. When you died, that was it. It was just a finality. And so Paul is writing to address this false teaching. He was committed to seeing the early church grow. He was committed to seeing them thrive. And what Paul realized is what we must realize as well, that if the resurrection is not real, then Christ's resurrection is not real. Right. And if Christ's resurrection is not real, then we have nothing to hold to. That's right. Paul says, and he's going to repeat it over and over again, that if Christ is not raised from the dead, then what we believe is in vain. 
In the church at Corinth, there were many who were coming out of pagan backgrounds. They were struggling with how to reconcile all the things of their newfound faith with things that from in their past. And what they did, they wholeheartedly believed that Christ had been raised from the dead. Paul had already pointed this out in the first 11 verses of this chapter. And I want to read them because here's where Paul is kind of setting his groundwork for what he's going to say in verses 12 through 19. Because no one there in Corinth would have doubted Christ's resurrection because they, if they doubted Christ's resurrection, they wouldn't even be there in the church to begin with. This is, it was a, an elemental part. They understood how important it was to believe in Christ's resurrection, but they did not carry that importance over to the resurrection of the dead for those who believe in Christ. Look at verses 1 through 11. He says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which you also received, in which you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. Now notice it. What Paul is talking about. He says, what I'm about to lay out to you is the foundation of your faith. It is the gospel. It is the good news. The word gospel means good news. We talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're talking about the good news of Jesus Christ. And the good news of Jesus Christ is not just that he was born, not just that he lived a perfect life, but that he died taking upon himself the punishment for all those who would be his. That he died, that he was buried in a tomb, and that he rose three days later. Amen. He removed any of those parts out of the narrative of Jesus' life, and the good news ceases to become good news. Amen. Because every one of those things is essential to the teaching of the gospel. And this is clear to them. Paul's saying, brothers, you know this because this is what you receive. This is what you stand upon. This is the foundation of your faith. This is how you know that you are saved. You're holding fast to the word. Look at verse 3. For I deliver to you, notice this, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, what? According to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. So Paul here is pointing out, there's no question or doubt in any of our minds as to what Christ has done. That he lived, he died, and he was resurrected, everything according to how the scriptures said. But then he goes on. Because what he's doing now is, is proving the validity of Jesus' resurrection based upon not just the scriptures, but based upon the countless eyewitnesses. That he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remained until now, but some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as one to untimely born, he appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored even more with all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. At the center of all this, Paul says, is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's astounded that so quickly that so easily that they would have believed the idea that Jesus Christ could be resurrected from the dead, but that they would deny the resurrection of others. Look at verse 12. He says, now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, there's no doubt about it. There's no question in your minds. He asked them this question. How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? I was like, how can this be? 
If you believe that Jesus was raised from the dead, then how can you say that if there is no resurrection of the dead for those who have put their trust in him? For those who will come after him? The question may be, though, the question that we want to ask ourselves this morning is what do we lose if we lose the resurrection? Why is it so important? Right? Why, why is Paul so adamant here that we not just believe in the resurrection of Christ, but that we also believe in the resurrection of the dead thereafter? What, what do we lose if we lose the resurrection? You know, in our day, we find many people who are okay with a very historical Jesus, but not a divine Jesus. They're okay with the historical truth that Jesus lived, that he was a real man, that he was a good man, a good teacher, a moral man. So they're not okay with the truth that Jesus died for the sins of his people. They're not okay with the fact that we believe that three days later that he arose from the dead. They're not okay with the truth that one day there'll be a resurrection of all people. The righteous to heaven and the unrighteous to eternal damnation. It's unacceptable to a modern world. So it's easier as it was in Paul's day, so it is easier here to just deny the resurrection of the body, the resurrection of the dead. It's not just an issue that the early church faced, but it's an issue that we even face in our own time as well. So what do we lose if we lose the resurrection? Paul's going to answer this in and really a series of what I look at as if-then statements. Remember that when you were in school? You know, the if-then statements. If this is true, then logically this has to be true. So Paul's going to walk us through some of these statements. He's like, if you believe this, if this is true, then here are the logical consequences for that. And sometimes this is how we have to look at things in the Scripture. And the things that we believe. We have to carry them to their furthest conclusion. It's not just enough to believe something. We really have to think it out. And thankfully, the Scripture gives us the ability to do that. If we believe this, then what is that going to do? How is it going to cause us to live differently? How is it going to affect our lives? How is it going to affect the way that we think and act and talk? Paul says we need to think about this. So the very first thing that we lose, if we lose the resurrection, is we lose a risen Savior. Notice what he says there in verse 13. He says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. Now we know that Christ has been raised. When the scriptures all over tell us from place after place after place, all through the New Testament, Paul's writings, Peter's writings, John's writings, you even get there to the very last book of the Bible, Revelation. As John is writing that great and glorious vision, you remember there in chapter 1, it says, When I saw him, I fell with his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last, I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen, and I have the keys of hell and death. What Paul is trying to help these believers understand is that you cannot have one resurrection without the other. You cannot have the resurrection of Christ and not have the resurrection of the dead. Because they go hand in hand. Because the, the conundrum that, that many of these early Christians faced was what they saw as great difficulties or impossibilities in the resurrection of the dead. Right? If someone is dead, how are they resurrected and brought back to life? Maybe. 
And what Paul is helping them to understand is that the impossibilities that you see in the resurrection of your dead loved ones, of your brother or your sister or your parents, those who have believed and trusted in Christ, even those who are outside of Christ who will be resurrected and destruction, he said the impossibilities that you see there are the same impossibilities that would be true in the case of Christ. Jesus was dead when they put him in the grave. He was not halfway dead. There's a, the, what they call the swoon theory, that Jesus had just been in such immense pain on the cross that he just passed out, and that they went through all this burial procedure and put him in the tomb, and someday, he just, sometime he just woke back up and unwrapped himself and came out of the tomb. Now, Jesus was dead. The, the, the heart had stopped pumping. That's the reason when the soldier pierced him in the side and the blood and the water flew out, what was, no, that was was the piercing of the pericardial sac around Jesus' heart. There's no way for Jesus to have any life left in his body. His body was cold, it was stiff, his breath had ceased, his blood had stopped pumping, and he lay there in that tomb for three days. Why three days? Well, because three days was the Jewish custom of how they understood that somebody was certifiably dead. You're in the hospital today, they have all these machines they can hook up to you. They can tell if you're breathing. They can tell if your brain has activity. And they know in a matter of seconds whether someone is alive or dead. They don't make those kind of mistakes really anymore in the modern world of modern medicine. But in a time when Jesus lived, there were times where somebody was just in a coma or just passed out. But they understood that after three days, this is when somebody was genuinely dead. So Jesus met all requirements. He was dead. His body had ceased to live. So Paul is saying, if you're saying the impossibilities of the resurrection of the dead have to do with the fact that someone is, is lifeless, their heart's not pumping, their body's not breathing, everything, he says, and you think that it can't be overcome, then it could not have been overcome in Christ either. Either God can raise people from the dead, or he cannot raise people from the dead. Paul says, therefore, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. If we lose the resurrection of the dead, if we lose a belief in the resurrection of the dead, we lose a resurrected Christ. Now, throughout the course of history, there's been a lot of popular religious figures. Men who through their fame or charisma or wealth or even by force have amassed great followings. I remember hearing a statistic one time that at any given time in modern times, that there are about five to ten people in the world who claim to be an incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. Now that's pretty odd for us to understand here in America, but you get to some third world countries, you get to some places across the earth, and there are, there are people who are claiming to be Jesus Christ incarnate. But there are others who have amassed great followers as religious leaders. And despite all of that, every single one of these people are just men. Finite, sinful men who, despite all their great accomplishments, couldn't defeat the one bondage that holds all men captive, and that's sin. There are two things that separate great religious leaders, great politicians, great religious figures from Jesus Christ. Their sin and their death. You know, sin is the curse that has affected every single one of us. From the first act of disobedience in the Garden of Eden, 
In the moment we sit in right now, the power of sin has encapsulated the world and caused each one of us to be born into a vicious bondage that we have no power to escape. Romans tells us that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Every person, no matter your race, your wealth, your social status, is inextricably and fully under the total control of sin. So the sin of all of us puts those great men, those great religious leaders, in the same place as each one of us. Sin is the great equalizer. Because sin doesn't care how rich or poor you are, doesn't care how famous or non-famous you are, it puts all of us on the same level. As Romans tells us, the wages of sin is death. Christ is different than all such men because he lived his life and never sinned. Not a single one of those great religious figures we can point to ever went a day without sin. But Jesus never sinned for the entirety of his entire life. Now their death is different because every single one of those leaders came face to face with the reality that tells us in Hebrews that it's appointed unto man wants to die and after this the judgment. No matter how rich, powerful, or successful any one of those figures became, every bit of it was taken away in the moment of an eye when death came for them. Standing face to face with the creator of the universe, they had nothing at their grasp to try to demonstrate their power, wealth, and their prestige. And without a resurrection, Jesus would be no different than any other of these religious figures. He would only be a good man who lived a good life and set a good example. Paul's helping them to understand, brothers and sisters, if you deny the resurrection of Jesus Christ based upon the idea that it seems to be impossible, he says not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then we have no Savior. We have no Messiah. We have no hope. We have nothing to trust in. The resurrection is essential to our faith. Or is the proving of Christ's Messiahship and power? What did the resurrection prove? The resurrection proved that Jesus was the Messiah because he fulfilled the promise. Amen. The resurrection proved, brothers and sisters, we need to understand this. The resurrection proved that Christ's sacrifice on the cross was approved and accepted by God. Jesus' sacrifice was there on the cross. And his resurrection from the dead is basically, in, in loose layman's terms, was God's stamp of approval saying, it was enough and I have accepted it. And Christ defeated the power of death. So if we lose the resurrection of the dead, we lose our Savior. If we lose the resurrection of the dead, secondly, Paul tells us, then our preaching is pointless. Look at verse 14. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Our preaching is in vain. Now, he's, he's not just specifically talking about the idea of, of what we're doing this morning or someone standing up and preaching. He's really talking about the proclamation of the entirety of the gospel. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, and again, we're following these if-then statements, these logical conclusions. If you do not have a resurrection of the dead in general, then you cannot have the resurrection of Christ in specifics. And if you do not have the resurrection of Christ, then you're preaching the proclamation of the gospel is pointless. Right. Now, we know that the entirety of what we do is built around the idea of the proclamation of the gospel. Romans chapter 10, so then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. 
And what did Paul say earlier here, just in those verses we read just a little bit ago? He says, for I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and how he was buried, and then he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures. Because the resurrection is the foundation of the gospel. Amen. As I said earlier, it's what makes the good news good. Yes. If Jesus has not been raised, we have no good news to share with anyone else. Because Jesus is no different than Buddha, no different than Muhammad, no different than any other religious figure. If he has not been raised from the dead. John MacArthur said this, he says, without the resurrection, the good news would be bad news. And there would be nothing worth preaching. Without the resurrection, the gospel would be an empty, hopeless message of meaningless nonsense. Unless our Lord conquered sin and death, making a way for me to follow in that victory, there is no gospel to proclaim. Amen. The Christian life, both for pastors and for lay people alike, is centered around the proclamation of the gospel. Christ commanded us to do it. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. But if the resurrection does not exist, if Christ has not been raised, then it's pointless to do so. Why would we go out and proclaim anything about who Jesus is if he's still in the grave? If his body is still in the tomb, it's pointless. Calvin pointed out, and Paul says here that our preaching is pointless or in vain. He says it's not simply as having some mixture of falsehood, but as being altogether an empty fallacy. If Christ is still dead, if the resurrection from the dead does not exist, what truth, what hope, what joy what peace with God is there to proclaim? Brothers and sisters, the hope that we offer to the world is that someone, you can have peace with God. We're not trying to find peace with anything else. Scripture tells us God is angry with the wicked every day. We, we need peace with God Amen. so that we don't face His anger. But there can be no peace with God without the resurrection of Christ. And without the resurrection from the dead, there could be no resurrection of Christ. But Paul continues there in that same verse, verse 14, he says, not only is our preaching in vain, he says, your faith also is vain. So what do we lose? When we lose the resurrection, we lose the power of faith. That word vain means to be empty, fruitless, void of effect, and to no purpose. I thought about each one of those words in that definition. To be empty. We know what it's like to be filled with the Spirit. The joy that comes from knowing Christ. But Paul says if Christ has not been raised, if the resurrection from the dead is not true, your faith is empty. You have nothing to hold to, nothing to cling to. It's fruitless. There's not going to be any demonstration of it in your life. There's no effect and to no purpose. Have you ever labored for something, maybe at a job, your, your boss gives you a project to do? And you really work hard at it. And then he comes in about a week later and says, oh, well, you know, they, they've changed and went direction. You know, sorry you put all this work into it, but it was all for naught. You know how disappointing you feel when you've labored for something, you, you put all this work into it, and then it just doesn't mean anything anymore. Paul says without the resurrection from the dead, without the resurrection of Christ, this is exactly what our faith is. We're giving everything for something that will mean nothing. We're giving everything for something that will have no power, no purpose, 
And think about it, brothers and sisters, of all the hundreds of thousands of men and women who have lived their lives in pointless vanity if the resurrection is not true. Missionaries, pastors, godly mothers and grandmothers who gave their energy, their family, their lives for the sake of the gospel. Paul says, if the resurrection is not true, every single one of them did that all in vain. They wasted their lives in a fruitless pursuit of nothing. If Christ is not risen, he's no different from any other religious figure. He has no power to save, he has no power to forgive, he has no power to provide everlasting life. Everything that our faith is built upon falls apart if Christ is not resurrected, if there is no resurrection from the dead. Paul goes on. What do we lose if we lose the resurrection? Verse 15 tells us that we lose our trustworthiness. Because he says, moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God. Because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. If the resurrection from the dead does not exist, if Christ has not been raised, then we are, to put it bluntly, liars. We're frauds. We're snakeling ourselves. We're proclaiming something that has no power but all the while telling people that it has every bit of the power. Over in my office, I, I like to collect odd things. If you've ever been in my office, you know that tremendously well. On the shelf in there, there's, well, it looks to be like some kind of hairbrush, right? It's kind of a dark uh, wood-looking color. You pull it down, it's got you know, uh, bristles on the other side. But if you read it, it, it says, uh, and I can't remember the, the guy's name, it's Dr. So-and-so's electric hairbrush. Now, you'll notice there's no place to put batteries in this hairbrush. No place to plug it into the wall. But yet it says it's an electric hairbrush. It was, I think, from around early 1900s, late 1800s. I found an original advertisement for it. Now, supposedly, this thing is infused with electricity. And this thing can cure everything from baldness to cancer. All you had to do was to take it out and just to rub it on your skin or to rub it on your hair. It was a miracle cure. All you had to do was order it and come to your house and you could cure everything. Now we all know how foolish that is, how silly it sounds. But brothers and sisters, without the resurrection, that's what the gospel would be. You're telling people you can have forgiveness of sin, you can have everlasting life, you can know joy and peace and everlasting comfort with God. Without the resurrection, none of that would be true. We would be telling people a blatant, obvious lie because they would die in their sins and face the eternal wrath of God if the resurrection is not true. The Bible contains many great truths. All of the great truths of the Bible are built upon the truth of the gospel. They're built upon the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. From the Old Testament to the very end of the New Testament, there is that scarlet thread of redemption. Because Jesus was there in the very beginning with God when they put this plan into motion because the scripture tells us that Jesus Christ is the lamb slain when before the foundation of the world. So everything about this world, everything about our faith is all built upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ that he would come 
as God's chosen one, that he would be the final sacrificial lamb, that he would defeat the power of death, hell, and the grave. Yes. If the resurrection isn't true, then Christ has not risen from the dead. Those who hold to those truths, those of us who proclaim those truths, are liars, and then we are telling lies to everyone that we share it with. But even worse than that, Paul says, he says we testify against God. He says not only would we be lying to others, but we would be blaspheming God's name. We'd be lying against God because we're saying that God did something. We're saying that God raised His Son or God sent His Son as the Messiah. But if the resurrection is not true, then God actually didn't do that. But we're saying that He did. And it's one thing to lie against a man. It's sinful to lie against our brothers and sisters, but it is an even greater thing to lie against God. The blaspheme the one who has given us all things. To lie about the truth of God's word is a very dangerous thing. Remember what Jesus said? He said, woe unto those who would deceive these little ones. It would be better if a millstone were draped around his neck and cast into the bottom of the sea. That's how serious God is about his word. That's how serious God is about his truth. And Paul says that if the resurrection is not true and we proclaim it as such, then we're blaspheming God's very name and his truth. So Paul goes on with verse 17. What do we lose if we lose the resurrection? We lose our redemption. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins. Notice he repeats that phrase again. He repeats that phrase again. If Christ has not been raised, he goes back to this again. He says, your faith is worthless. He already said that in verse 14. He's helping to understand this is all built upon the resurrection of Christ. We have no faith if we have no resurrection. And he says, if you have no resurrection of the body, if you have no resurrection of Christ, then you are still in your sins. Romans chapter 4. Paul writing there in the church of Rome, and he says, But for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses, and listen to this, brothers and sisters, and was raised again for our justification. Amen. How are we made right with God? Through Christ's resurrection. Amen. We are justified, not as if we've never done anything wrong, but because we have. But God grants to us Christ's righteousness. We're justified by the righteousness of Christ, not of our own ability and our own doing. There is no forgiveness of sin without the resurrection. We can't miss this. Without a resurrected Christ, we cannot know the forgiveness of sins. The scripture tells us that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And what made it so? That Christ, as the last sacrificial lamb, the last lamb slain for the remission of sins, what made it so that he became the permanent and final sacrifice? It was the fact that he was raised from the dead. There had been lambs sacrificed all throughout the Old Testament, and they were sacrificed, and that remission lasted for just a short time, but those lambs were dead. They died. They didn't raise back from the grave. But Jesus did. And because he did, now we have forgiveness of sins. So Paul tells us, that if we do not believe in the resurrection of the body, 
Therefore, we cannot believe in the resurrection of Christ. And if we cannot believe in the resurrection of Christ, then we cannot believe in the forgiveness of our sins. We are still in our sin. Now, brothers and sisters, think about what that means. I want you to think back before Christ saved you and what your life was like before you had freedom from the power of sin. When sin still held you in that dark bondage. Where no matter what you wanted to do, all you could do was live for sin and self for the devil. And Paul says that if Christ is not resurrected, that's where you still are. No matter what you may think about yourself, you're still under the power of sin. And if you die in that sin, you'll face the punishment of God. If we lose the resurrection, we lose our redemption. All goes on. Verse 18. What do we lose? If we lose the resurrection, we lose our hope in death. He says, Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. I can't count the number of funerals that I've done over the past 12 years, but I can tell you that at every single funeral I've ever preached, there's one verse that I always talk about. If that person was a believer in Christ, I always talk about what Paul says to the church at Thessalonica. That we do not grieve as those who have no hope. Because we have hope. Yes. That in Christ we will see our loved ones again. That in Christ we will be resurrected to eternal life in heaven with him. It's the reason that Christians have been able to go to the lions, to go to the gallows, to go to being burned in the center of city square without fear is because they have hope in death. Because they know what awaits them on the other side. But where does that hope come from? The hope comes from the fact that we have a Savior who has been resurrected from the dead. That He defeated the power of death, and He faced that fear for us so that we don't have to be afraid of it. There's nobody in this room this morning who wants to die. We, we love life, and we're grateful for the life that's given us. We're not sitting here this morning looking forward to death, but we can say with complete clarity and truth this morning that death is not a fearsome thing for us as believers. Because we have hope. Amen. We have hope in Christ. But Paul helps us to understand, brothers and sisters at the church of Corn, brothers and sisters at the church at Barberville, if you do not have the resurrection from the dead, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, you have no hope in death. He says, those who have fallen asleep. And remember what Jesus said there about Lazarus? The disciples were confused about that. And Jesus says, no, he says, he, he's died. That was the word that was used really throughout the New Testament. They would say someone had fallen asleep. That meant that they had died. He says, those who have died in Christ, he says, have perished. They've just ceased to exist. They're, they've gone off to perdition. There's no hope for them. There's no resurrection for them. This would mean that all of those, as one commentator put it, all of those in Hebrews chapter 11 who we call the Hall of Faith should be called the Hall of Fools. Because they believed and trusted in something that was not real. And all the hope that they had about what was coming in the hereafter, all the hope that they had of looking towards the future, believing in the promise of the Messiah, was vain and pointless and did nothing for them. We lose our hope in death if we lose the resurrection. Final thing that Paul tells us here, verse 19, what do we lose if we lose the resurrection? 
We lose our peace in a troubled world. Notice what he says. He says, if we have hope in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. The word pity means to be sympathetic. It's evoked by suffering or distress, some type of misfortune. Paul says that if the resurrection does not exist, if Christ has not been risen from the dead, he says if, if, if we can only hope in Christ in this life and not the life to come, he says that of all people on the earth, we, who's the we here, not just the apostles, not just Paul, but all Christians, he says we are to be pitied above all men. But why? Because without the resurrection, the accusations of the pagans, the accusations of the lost, that the cross was foolishness, would be true. All those men who had suffered for the cause of Christ, those who had given up their lives, those who had lost their families, those who had lost their livelihoods, would be complete and utter fools. To give their entirety of their life up for something that made no difference. That's why Paul says... That we are above all men to be pitied. Because it would have been better, now listen to me clearly here as I say this morning, it would have been better for these brothers and sisters to have not believed at all than to believe in a faith and to believe in a faith that was pointless and vain. Why? Because if Christ has not been resurrected, if there is no resurrection from the dead, then they've given up the entirety of their lives to suffer in such a way that they didn't even need to do. The pagans weren't suffering the way that the Christians were. They weren't having to give up their livelihoods. They weren't suffering in the jails. They weren't being beaten and stoned and fed to the lions. Paul says if the resurrection is not true, he says, you guys are above all people to be pitied because you've given up your entire life for something that will mean nothing at the end. We lose our peace in the troubled world. Because the one thing that carried all of those men and women through, the one thing that continues to carry us through as Christians, no matter what we suffer and what we endure, is the fact that this world is not the end. Amen. When we're persecuted, when we're beaten, when we're trodden down, we look and we think, suffering may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Amen. This life may be everything it is to some people, but this life is not all there is for me. One day there's coming a blessing. One day there's coming an end to all this suffering, and I'll go to be with my Lord and Savior. That's what carries us through. We have peace in a troubled world because we believe in a resurrected Christ. And Paul says, if you have no resurrected Christ, you can have no peace in this world. Everything is taken away from you. This is what we lose if we lose the resurrection. But now I want you to read verse 20 with me. Paul's laid all of this out for the believers there at Corinth. And he comes to this point. Amen. Verse 20. But now. Amen. Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. Paul says, brothers and sisters, you have no reason to fear because Christ has been raised from the dead. Amen. And he goes on, we don't have time this morning to look at the remaining of the chapter, but read it this week. Paul goes on to lay 
clearly out how if Christ has been raised from the dead, he is the first fruits, he is the demonstration that now all of us will experience the resurrection from the dead when we die here upon this earth. Because remember what did Jesus tell Martha there in John chapter 11? He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? She said unto him, Yes, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, which should come into the world. Brothers and sisters, this morning, if we believe that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God, we believe that he has been resurrected from the dead, we also can too believe in the resurrection of the dead for all. Amen. And if we believe in the resurrection of the dead for all, then we can have preaching that is powerful and not in vain. We can have a faith that is living and active and not in vain. We can proclaim the truth of the gospel and not have any fear of falsehood. We can know and trust that Christ has been raised and that we are not still in our sins, but that our sins have been gloriously forgiven by the gracious mercy of God. And that when we fall asleep in this life, that this is not all that there is, but there is joy everlasting that comes in the morning. Amen. And that even in the midst of this life, in trial and difficulty and tribulation, that God will carry us through. We are not a people to be pitied, as Paul says here. We are a people of power, a people of love, a people of mercy and grace. We are people who not only believe in the resurrection from the dead, we believe in the resurrection of Jesus, and we believe it because we have experienced the fullness of its power. We are a people who do know what it means to be forgiven. We're people that know what it means to worship a risen Savior. And we are people who hold to it, believe it, and trust in the promise because our Lord defeated death. We know that we shall as well. Amen. Glory to God. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we are here on this day to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. But because of his resurrection, we know that we have a resurrection from the dead and to eternal life, that our sins have been forgiven. Because Christ is risen, we have a faith that is living and active and breathing in our life. We have a faith that can be trusted and cling to to provide everything that we need in this life. While we do not take it for granted that perhaps there might be one person here this morning who's never put their faith and trust in Christ. But they hear this morning, Father, of the joy of what you have done through your Son, and that forgiveness is available, that eternal life is available because of what Christ has done. We pray this morning that today would be the day that they would trust in your Son. We pray that your Holy Spirit would move upon their heart to draw them unto you. And that as your word tells us, Lord, that they would confess their sin before you, they would trust in Christ and know the gift of eternal life. Lord, for those of us who are believers here this morning, Lord, help us not just today, but every day, Lord, to remember the glory of the resurrection. Lord, help us to walk in that power every single day, knowing that everything that our faith is built upon is built upon the fact that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. And may it enable us and carry us with power and unction to do the things that you called us to do. And we ask all these things in the name of your Son, 
our resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.